Welcome back to another episode of the Cornell Thank You Podcast. I'm Michelle here with Steph right after our conversation with a top neurologist, brilliant woman who also has incredible warmth and I just loved her. It's Dr. Lauren Koch-Elman and she has a history with Steph and loves Steph. And it honestly, Steph, it warmed my heart how much she adored you. Oh my gosh. I, I can't even tell you. My heart is full right now and so proud of her and the work that she does. So you'll hear all about that. But here are keywords for today. Okay. Little sister, neurology A-lister, and Zima double fister. Remember Zima? Well, you'll <laughs> hear more about that right after we roll the intro. Listeners, I met today's guest when she was eight years old. I was 12. Michelle, do you remember my best friend from high school, Sherry? Of course. I loved her. Yeah. So this is Sherry's little sister, Lauren, who is actually our little sister, because we're going to get to that too. Now she's Dr. Lauren Koch-Elman. She's the director of the ALS Center and the MDA Center at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a professor of neurology, Michelle, at Penn. Feeling inadequate. Yes. We're going to feel very inadequate. Anyway, I loved Lauren when she was a kid. I knew her growing up. I knew her that she went to Cornell. She was there after us, but we'll get to all that. But Lauren, thank you. I am so glad to see you again and so happy to have you on our podcast. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. It's really um, nice to see you, Stephanie. Nice to meet you, Michelle. It's exciting for me to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We are so glad you're here. Steph really was looking forward to this interview. So we are very excited to dig in and find out everything, Lauren. Before I jump ahead, because now I'm dying to know about the whole sister thing, I'm going to stop myself. Tell me, where did you grow up and what made you choose Cornell? This is actually going to be embarrassing. I grew up in Rockville, Maryland, which is not far from Stephanie. And Stephanie probably doesn't even know this, but she was my idol when I was growing up. So of course, my big sister was my idol, but Stephanie went to Cornell. So I wanted to go to Cornell. So actually, (laughs) Stephanie has a lot to do with why I went to Cornell. And I applied early decision and I got in and that was that. By the way, that's as good a reason as any. Oh my God. My heart is full right now. Yes, I remember because I was a senior I guess when you were senior in high school. And so she applied and I was so That's happy right. when she got in. And of course we were gone by that point. Yeah. So what was freshman year like? I don't even know. Where did you live and, and yeah. did you rush freshman year? Yeah, I did. I lived on West Campus. At the time they were the U-Hauls, but I think they're actually gone now. And I rushed freshman year. And actually I'm pretty sure I have you to thank for why I am a little sister, because I'm not sure it would have ended as well if you hadn't put in a good word for me as I as I know you did. Well, um, a good word only goes so far. That's true. Me. You got in on your own merit for sure. Well, yeah, it went far great... enough. Yeah. So that all worked out very, very well. You chose SDT. Yes. Yes, I did. Oh, good. My three best friends that I still have are from my pledge class. So did you love living in the house? I did actually. Yeah, I really, really did. Um, I have very, very good memories. What was your major and why did you pick it? So I was a psychology major. I knew I couldn't major in science because I would get crushed and I would never get into medical school. So I actually tried to choose something that would be easier and I could get good grades in so that I could get into medical school, which turned out well for me. I went a little bit towards the science part in psychology and did animal behavior. Did you have to do or did you want to do research and extra labs? And what was your life like as pre-med? 
So I will tell you that my good friends will fondly or perhaps not fondly remember that in our apartment, I had, I don't know, six at a time tape recorders set up with canary birds singing. Ooh. I did this. Yes. Very, very bizarre. I won't go into detail, but very, very bizarre canary bird song research. And I would be running around hitting stop and hitting play on the recorders and timing when they were singing. So my roommates put up with a lot of bird song. But in exchange for that, I am actually the world's expert on testosterone induced female canary song. So if you ever, ever need any information about that, you can come to me. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I have no yeah. idea what that means. Yeah, this is actually why I went to medical school because it's of no relevance. So you can't really do anything with that except get into medical school. So did yeah. someone force you to study that or did you choose that topic? I'm embarrassed to say I chose it. You chose testosterone induced female bird songs. Yes, I did. I did. Well, good for you. I don't want to do a deep dive on this, but I am just curious if, if you can just tell us simply when you put testosterone in female canaries, do they sing differently? Well, yes, because uh, female canaries don't sing. So you have oh. to induce them to sing by oh. putting little testosterone implants into them and then you can make them sing. So, yeah. And it changes the way their brains look. And so, yeah, a lot of okay. a lot of impressive things happen. All right. That all makes sense now, right? Yes. Now, now this now is I'm starting it. to come together, right? I yeah. just thought that they were going to suddenly be baritone instead of soprano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. this is actually much more interesting. All yeah. right. I'm glad you asked that question. Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just yeah. a follow-up there. Yeah. Yeah. I do, I do want to ask you, though, Lauren, because, you know, I know your parents very, very well. Your mm -hmm. dad is a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Your sister, Sherry, is now a judge. I don't know mm -hmm. if you knew that, Michelle, but yeah. she is a judge. Your parents must be so proud, by the way. Shout out to Dale and Ellis here. Yes. Why did you want to be a doctor? You have such lawyer blood in your family. It was from birth. I was always going to be a doctor. I knew I was going to be a doctor. There was no other path for me. Yeah. You know, being a doctor, I know it's cliche to say it's a noble profession, but it really is. I mean, you, what you're doing in your daily life, especially with the work that you're doing um, on the brain and helping your patients, it, it's life-saving work. Do you get, well, we, we didn't even get to the part of you going to med school, but I am just curious, like, do you feel gratified on a day-to-day -day basis what you're doing? Um, that's an interesting question. I, not always, but, um, but I will say this, I'm always really, really interested in what I'm doing. It's very interesting still. I'm very stimulated by it. I don't, oh, I mean, I'm a neurologist, so I don't always get to cure people. I mean, I actually never get to cure people. So that is a bummer. We're still mm -hmm. working on that. Sometimes I get to help people, which is good. But what I'm doing is always really, really interesting and stimulating. And even after, you know, 20 some odd years of doing this, it's still really, really interesting and fascinating. And my field is moving forward in really, really interesting and exciting ways. So, you know, after all this time, it's still really cool what I do. At what point in medical school did you know that you wanted to be a neurologist? So this is like not the best way of figuring out your specialty, but any other doctors out there will know this. But when you're in medical school, you do these rotations sort of one after the other, and they're what you call the core rotations. There's medicine, there's surgery, there's OBGYN, there's peds. And I kept doing them and checking them off and say, okay, well, I'm not doing that. So I did medicine. I was like, nope, not doing that. I did surgery. I'm like, definitely not doing that. OBGYN, I'm like, hell to the no. And <laughs> I kept saying, no, 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 no. And, you know, like I said, I had to apply for a residency. So I hadn't done neurology yet. And I was like, well, 
I was a psych major, so I should probably like neurology. I really like playing with my reflex hammer. That's cool. <laughs> um, so I'm going to apply in neurology. And I had not done my neurology rotation yet. So I was like, I hope I like it. So I'd already, I applied in neurology without having done my neurology rotation yet, which is ridiculous and foolish and unheard of and ludicrous. And I applied. And so I was kind of like roped into it. And then I did my neurology rotation. I was like, uh oh, <laughs> this is horrible. <laughs> oh, no. I did not like inpatient neurology. And I was like, what have I just done? And then I did some outpatient neurology. And I thought, okay, well, I can, I think I can make this work. Why did you choose Cornell Med? Did you, I know it's in New York, so it was a change of scenery, but did yeah. you want to continue going to Cornell or why did you pick it? Uh, if I'm being honest, it was the best school I got into. Yeah, it's a great school. All right. So you finished medical school and did you pick Penn because it had a neurology department that you wanted to go to? I mean, how did you end up there? As far as neurology programs go, there were, you know, the four best programs and most of them were really most interested in people with PhDs and nerdy as I am, I do not have a PhD. Um, I'm much more a clinical person and I can speak science, but I can't really speak science. So I wasn't going to fit in with all the PhDs. So Penn was my top choice and it's a match. So that's kind of just how it happened. And I was thrilled, honestly, until I got there um, and realized that my residency class was all men and me. And the residency class ahead of me was all men and one woman. And, the, and then the residency class behind me was all men and one woman. Now, why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, it changed since then. It's actually reversed itself. But for whatever reason, when I was there, it was very testosterone heavy. They were great guys, but they were guys nonetheless. So it wasn't, yeah, I wasn't thrilled with that. But um, I'm actually still friendly with all of them. So it worked out. Oh. And what is life like as a resident? Give us your, you wake up on a Monday morning and what happens? So life as a resident then is different than it is now. Um, because I went through residency before the work hours restrictions. So now they have work hours restrictions and there's concern about wellness and things like that, that it's better now than it was. But when I was a resident, it was sort of old school, you know, 36 to 40 hour shifts and that sort of thing. You stayed until your work was done. And it was definitely, definitely difficult. To be fair, I was probably clinically depressed during my internship, just just from sleep deprivation and that sort of thing, even though I was engaged and living with my fiance. So I wasn't lonely and I wasn't like socially depressed, but it was just so bizarre. I mean, you're thermodysregulated, which means that, you know, your body never knows what temperature it is. Your, your GI system is all out of whack. You can't really exercise. It's, you live in fear of hurting someone. It's a very strange life. Um, and you're on call every third or fourth night, which means overnight in the hospital, which was very unpleasant. And I really wouldn't wish it on anyone, to be honest. Are you saying it's not that way anymore? Now they pay more attention to making sure you're well cared for. It's a little bit more like shift work. So it used to be that if, if you were on call on a Monday, then you would go in Monday morning and you would stay through Tuesday until your work was done, which means you'd probably be there until Tuesday at like 4 or 5 p.m. Now they have rules that don't allow that. So you would be leaving usually by Tuesday at 10 a.m., which is much more humane, really. Um, and they also have things like night float to cover the nights and stuff like that. So it's just not the same. But I did survive it, and most people do. That's the thing. You know, in your bio, Lauren, on the Penn website under expertise, it oh. lists 20 different things. Oh, yeah. 
tell our listeners, what is your main focus? If someone has this, they are coming to you. Yeah. So my comfort zones. Um, so I've been taking care of people with ALS for a really long time, for 22 years. And I feel like if someone comes to me for an opinion about ALS, it's a it's probably as good of an opinion as they're going to get from anyone else, you know, in in the country. And I I have very good colleagues around the country who, you know, I I consider good friends and that sort of thing. So that's something that I that I'm is a clinical expertise, but I also really really enjoy taking care of adults with muscular dystrophy mm-hmm. um, and also spinal muscular atrophy and um, participate in clinical trials in all of those disorders. And there's been a real change in how we care for uh, people with all of those disorders during my time as a physician. And that's been super exciting to see how the field is changing based on what we understand about these diseases and their causes and how they can be treated. So those are the things that I, the disorders that I care for, ALS, adult muscular dystrophy, and spinal muscular atrophy. Are these long-term patients that you have? And if so, how do you keep them optimistic? That's a great question, actually. So uh, one of the reasons that I like neuromuscular medicine is because there's a lot of longitudinal care. So you have a real um, opportunity to establish relationships with your patients and with their families, um, get to know them and um, really have an impact in their um, clinical course, even even under the circumstances where there isn't a cure, sometimes when there isn't even um, a disease-modifying treatment. And um, that's something that I find very valuable. Now, as I said, we've been starting to get to a place where we are having disease-modifying treatments, which is super exciting. So for example, in spinal muscular atrophy, I I give this talk where I, I have this timeline of SMA, and it really kind of relates to my timeline as well, because the um, chromosome that SMA is linked to was identified when I was in undergrad. The gene was identified when I was in medical school. And now I treat patients with medication that's stopping the progression of disease. And that all has happened during my career. And it's just the most remarkable thing to be part of. So it's actually very, very um, gratifying to, to be able to do that with patients. So with ALS, Lauren, how mm-hmm. often are you giving them the diagnosis? You have ALS and how often are people coming to you after they know that and they want your opinion on it? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. So I'm almost never the first neurologist that someone sees. Um, I'm usually a second or third opinion. The dip- Some people know they have it. Some people kind of know they have it. In their heart, they know they have it, but they haven't heard it out loud. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, I'm sort of the last hope. Mm-hmm. Um, they're praying, you know, that I'll tell them something different, but they don't really think that's going to happen. So usually when they hear it from me, that's it. That means this is it. This is the diagnosis. So I consider when I tell someone it's a breaking the news event. Mm. And to be quite honest, I do that at least once a week, usually twice. And and what does it feel like? Because you're a nice person and you have a big heart. How does that feel to give someone that kind of news? It's it's gut-wrenching um, every time it's gut-wrenching. Um, sometimes it's worse than other times. You know, it's one thing to tell someone who's 76 and it's quite another thing to tell someone who's 43. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes it's actually physically unbearable. And the thing that I have to always do is remember that it's not my tragedy because the last thing I want to do is have the patient 
and the patient's family feeling bad for me because that is not acceptable. But it's it's really about making the moment for the patient and their family and not relaying my own grief because I grieve with every single patient and family member. One of the things that we noticed on your bio was kind of like the uh, report card and you get five out of five and everything, but especially patients recommending you or being a good listener or making time to hear their full story in your profession. Cause in some professions, somebody's got a different patient every 10 minutes. Do you have mm. enough time to really communicate difficult information or a timeline with patients? Do you have that time that you need? Well, to the chagrin of my chairman, I'm a money loser for the department <laughs> because I schedule. So we, we are supposed to see patients very quickly, but I cannot do that. Um, I schedule an hour and a half for a new patient and an hour for a follow-up, which is entirely too long to make any money because it's simply impossible to have the kinds of conversations that you need to have with this patient population quickly. You cannot cut people off when they have questions. You know, it, it really matters to spend the time. I know it sounds tutti fruity, but it's actually true. And breaking the news is one difficult conversation, but there are others too. I'm, I will tell you that one of my top least favorite conversations to have with someone is telling them that they are no longer able to drive. You know, that's oh. not a fun conversation to have right. because it's it's about taking away independence and this sort of thing. So there, and I, I could list others, but I don't want to be a downer here. There are any number of things that are difficult to talk about. So, um, you know, this does take time and there's no substitute for time, honestly. I will say about that report card, I never look at it, never, ever under any circumstances. My husband yeah. looks at it routinely. Um, <laughs> yes. He gets a kick out of that, but yeah. I don't. So. <laughs> That's well, smart. If you need a confidence booster, I don't think you do. But if you do, you should look at it. It's your patients love you. It was five out of five down the line. I want to ask you something about alternative medicine, because if you listen to podcasts like the Huberman podcast, who's a neuroscientist or, or TikTokers or whatever, there's all these theories on alternative things, cold showers and certain diets, infrared saunas. Mm -hmm. How much do you think any of that could help or how often are you asked about those kinds of things? I am asked about those kinds of things on the daily, definitely. And I try to keep a very open mind. It's hard for me to keep an open mind because what often happens is that people get grifted out of money, which really upsets me. So I tell people that I'm willing to consider anything right. and educate them about it in a reasonable way. And I, I take a very, very academic approach. So for example, if someone were to ask me about acupuncture, I would say, I think that acupuncture may be helpful for some symptoms, including pain, stress, or fatigue. And if you'd like to try it for something like that, go right ahead. I don't think that it will help for the underlying disease, but there may be some symptoms that it could be help, helpful for. It's a great answer. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah. Are there things that we can be hopeful about? Oh my God, yes. So it's so exciting what's happening in my field. Um, we're on the cusp of gene therapy. So gene therapy has been approved in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is creating a whole new world. And there are new approaches of medications that are what I call a cousin of gene therapy, which I won't go into the science of. The point is that this is new delivery mechanisms for delivering medications for monogenic diseases, which are diseases caused by one gene mutation. And the dominoes are about to start falling. Mm. 
and it's super exciting. So within the next 10 years, we're going to start seeing therapies for disorders that we haven't had therapies for. It's just really exciting. When you talk, Lauren, about therapies, are you saying that they're finding more ways to treat these disorders or they're finding yeah. they're going to find a cure? We don't say cure. Cure, okay. cure is a very big word. So even gene therapy is not a cure. Gene okay. therapy creates another form of the disease, but a form that is that creates more of a chronic condition that um, the um, people who have the condition will have a much, much higher quality of life and a completely different landscape in front of them than what they're looking at now. Yeah. Well, I feel more hopeful already. I mean, that's good news. Yeah. Science is incredible that way. Okay. Can we, while we're in a good mood, can we turn it 180 and do our pet peeves and get angry? Oh, sure. Yeah. Let's do we're going to talk about our pet peeves, Lauren. Steph, okay. can you start us off so that she gets the idea of what we're, what we're okay. doing here, And yeah. then we'll ask her hers. And I told Lauren, the sillier, the better, because these okay. are ridiculous things that yeah. bother us. But this is my latest one that I'm just, I just get annoyed. When you are on a website and you're putting in your address and it asks for the country, okay, United States, easy. Sure. When they don't have it first- when you're yes. scrolling, you have to go through yes. like United Arab Emirates to yes. get, to, don't yes. you know if someone is from the United States, like I put agree. that first. And frankly, even if they're not, put it first yeah. anyway. Put it first. Yeah. We're the best country in the world. Put it first. I agree with you. That's a great one. Yeah. That's my latest. Yeah. What's yours? Mine is this. It's, it's kind of a two part. First of all, if you are sick, please don't show up to a giant event. I'm not even talking COVID. You have a stomach flu. You think you might, you have a fever please don't show up. That's part one. I agree. Part two is please don't wait until I am three quarters of the way into the hug to tell me you have a fever because <laughs> there is no way out. Now I either, either I look like the lunatic. I'm like, all right, never mind, never mind. Don't, I'm not going to hug you or I'm forced to hug you and not insult you. And now I am contaminated. Could you tell me when I am a foot away, I'd love to hug you, but I have a fever. And it just happened to me. It did. Yeah. Oh, where are you with a fever these days? Yeah, yeah fever. Yeah. Don't touch me. <laughs> and, and don't make me look like the bad guy when I back off. Did you back off? No. Went no. right in. Yeah. It's too late anyway. It's too late. See, yeah. the doctor says it's too yeah. late. Yeah. 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 Fever is when you're contagious. That's the height of germiness. Uh, uh, stand back. Yeah. Stand back and stay home. Yes. Yeah. Stand back and stay home. I'm going to yeah. make a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Lauren, what do you have for us? Well, mine is a little, a little different. So my pet peeve is actually my dog's eye boogers. Oh, I yes. don't know. Yes. I love dogs. I can't stop myself from picking yeah. them. Oh, I ignore them. I ignore them. Oh, oh, I how, pick. I pick how them. How do you ignore them? I don't even know what I'd rather do instead of doing that. I, I can't do it. What you don't use your hands. Yeah, hands, what fingers. Like yeah, little you tweezers. Put gloves on? No. Gloves. No, I can't because I can't. I can't look at them even for a second. The minute I'm walking in the door, I'm going for them. If you want to do our speed round, sure. Lay right. it on me. I'm Let's ready. See how the memory is. Okay. All right. Why don't we start, Michelle? And I love Cornell food. Tell us. Do you remember your favorite on campus and off campus dining? I do. On okay. campus, it was Trillium for lunch, and off campus, it was the Nines for pizza. Favorite bar? Dino's. What was your go-to drink back then? Now, this is embarrassing, but I was a Zima girl. Oh, Zima. So, yeah. Why? Well, so you say that, but really it was the original seltzer. Yeah, it was like Sprite and beer mixed. Where did you study? I studied in my bed. What was your favorite SDT party? 
well, this wasn't really a party, but fun in the sun was is yes. just what stands out to me. I mean, that Ugh. was just kind of a Greek festival, I think. Favorite class. Introduction to brain and behavior. It changed, um, yeah, changed the way I look at the world. Steph, did you take that? No, that was too sciencey for me. I tried to stick with like social psychology and <laughs> psychology and the law. Yeah, those were my, that was my sweet spot. What about Lauren? What song, when you hear it now, takes you right back to Cornell? Oh, what a night. Or actually, what is that called? December 1963. Do you have a favorite memory or a special moment? This is something that comes to me sometimes for no good reason. And it's it's sort of a weird one. But during graduation, when, you know, Frank Rhodes was always the speaker because yeah. he was still president when I was there. And he at the end, I guess, or I don't know if it was the end, but it's like a flashbulb memory. That's an actual neurology term, by the way, flashbulb memory Ooh. for me. When he he quotes that Gaelic prayer goes like this. It's may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Oh God, that's beautiful. I do remember that. Yeah. You know, I, I'm I'm feeling a pang of sadness that we did not overlap at school. That would have been yeah. really fun to have you there the same time that I was there. But Lauren, yeah. you lived your best Cornell life. And <laughs> I, I can't tell you, I mean, as like a feeling like a big sister, how proud I am of you oh. and what you're doing in your career and how you've impacted people's lives. So I'm just so impressed and feeling so proud right now. And I know your family is too. Um, well, that's nice of you to say. I don't think you realize how much of an influence you had on my life, though. Thank you for saying I probably that. never would have gone to Cornell if it hadn't been for you and wouldn't have had the experiences and the friends that I had. So I feel like I owe a lot to you, actually. Oh, I love that. Wow. Well, thank you for that. When you think back on your Cornell experience, what do you feel like you're most thankful for? I'm sure this is what everybody says, so it's really not creative. But the truth is I am most thankful for my friends because they've lasted me you know, through life. These are, these are the people on the very short list of people I would give a kidney to. So that's probably a doctor's way of saying ride or die. Yes. You know, these are my real true friends. Yeah. And they're lucky to have you. And, and the whole world is, I think, you know, Steph and I, before we even got you on here today, we were just so impressed with what you're doing and, and how you've dedicated your life really to just improving people's darkest moments. And we really appreciate it and admire it. And I'm so glad to have met you today because I've been hearing a lot about you. And thank you so much for making time for us because we know you don't have a lot of it. I would always make time for Cornell and thank you for having me. Um, It was really a pleasure speaking to you guys and sharing memories. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks so much for listening. Join us next week for another episode of the Cornell Thank You Podcast. Thank you, Sam.